Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to Global Reboot, a podcast in partnership with the Doha Forum. I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy Magazine's Editor-in-Chief. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by two of the world's top economists to discuss how we should build stronger economies where no one is left behind. This is an important moment to have this discussion because while some countries are spending their way out of the pandemic, most others are falling further behind. Record unemployment has been matched only with record gains for those on top. The pandemic has shown us once again how growing inequality is one of the fundamental challenges of our time. COVID cases rise across the country. The economic fallout also grows. Hundreds of thousands applying for unemployment this week. And nearly one in eight Americans say they do not have enough to eat each week. Uh, The cost of fighting the pandemic has led to record government borrowing and the worst recession in more than three centuries. Of course, the impact is being felt in different ways. For Since 1979, a 200% rise for the top one percenters. The gap with everybody else widened. Well, note that the black people make up 13% of the U.S. population. They hold less than 3% of the nation's wealth. Millennial households now have a lower net worth than the baby boomer generation did at the same point in life. This war, eat the rich and feed the poor. I'm joined today by Mariana Matsukato and Raghuram Rajan. Mariana Matsukato is a professor at University College London and the author of Mission Economy, a Moonshot Guide to Changing Capitalism. Raghuram Rajan is a professor at the University of Chicago. He is also the former governor of the Reserve Bank of India, that's India's central bank, and former chief economist of the IMF. It's now been nearly a year and a half since the coronavirus pandemic began. When it comes to our response to it as people, as governments, as economies, what surprised you? I think what surprised me was how bad certain things got, but also where the interesting things happened. In the UK, we are you know, an advanced, industrialized country, and yet we did incredibly poorly early on, really delivering things like the test and trace system. Now, the test and trace scheme in England has had its worst performing week. It was outsourced completely, actually, to Deloitte. Tracing team only reached 58% of contacts of those testing positives. Which, you know, as far as I know, doesn't have that as its expertise. I thought they did accounting. Exactly. So that kind of lack of public sector capacity within public administrations to actually govern this particular crisis was quite revealing. On the other hand, some countries also in the developing world did incredibly well. (laughs) Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, I grew up in India and my parents still live there. And one of the strange things for me has been just to watch how the fortunes of different countries have seesawed. In March of 2020, New York, where I live, was the epicenter. And I remember at the time getting worried messages from friends and family across India. And now the last couple of months have been the exact opposite. So New York is just fine. I'm vaccinated. India is in complete crisis. And what I learned from that really is that our assessments of how countries have performed are essentially just snapshots in time. Things can change very quickly. Raghu, what surprised you? I think the 
extent of support certainly has been mind-boggling in industrial countries, especially in the United States. This is wartime levels of spending in what is effectively peacetime. Its counterpart has been the extreme inability of poor countries to spend anything to support their households, to support their firms. And this is deepening existing fissures that already were there. Mariana, there's inequality among states, but there's also inequality among people. I was struck by a recent essay in the uh, FT by Rachir Sharma, in which he argued that while central banks have injected some $9 trillion into economies worldwide, the wealth of billionaires has risen from $5 trillion to $13 trillion in just the last 12 months. That, he says, is the most dramatic such surge in history. What are the implications of such unprecedented individual wealth? We should remember that this also happened with the financial crisis. There was huge amounts of government reaction to that crisis, basically to save capitalism from falling apart. Never got the credit for that, by the way. But most of that liquidity injection ended up back inside the financial sector. This time around, it's more tragic, of course, because you would have expected the injection of the kind of trillions that uh, Rago was talking about to have been aimed at the kind of structures that have been starved. What does it actually mean to stop that, to really build back better? What does it mean, for example, that instead of just having a massive recovery fund for sectors, especially sectors like airlines that you know aren't flying, what does it mean to build into the contracts of those recovery funds conditionalities that make sure we actually build back better. In that particular case of airlines, the obvious thing would be if you don't commit to reducing your carbon emissions in the next five years, maybe you shouldn't access the recovery fund. And unless we get into that mindset that this isn't about handouts, guarantees, subsidies, bailouts, recovery, just for the sake of recovery, but truly building a much, much better economy, and I would say build forward radically better, not just build back better, then it's really a missed opportunity. Raghu, countries in the West at least seem to have figured out that pouring tons of stimulus money into the economy is the way forward. The yeas are 220, the nays are 211. The passage of the country's sixth and largest COVID relief bill. This bill represents a historic, historic victory for the American people. I mean, the four-odd trillion dollars of proposed U.S. stimulus money makes the so-called bazooka of the Obama administration deployed during the financial crisis look like peanuts. Our most urgent task upon taking office was to shore up the same banks that helped cause this crisis. And if there's one thing that has unified Democrats and Republicans and everybody in between, it's that we all hated the bank bailout. Do you think governments are going about this in the right way so far? No. (laughs) I think in the immediate reaction to the pandemic, Let's keep everything afloat. Let's pour money into this because it's only two months. And at the end of it, we can recoup all the spending over time. Well, two months has turned into a year and a half. I mean, think airlines. Mariana talks about, you know, we could have gotten them to do more. But I would say as time went on, we should also have gotten their shareholders and their bondholders to bear more. I mean, the notion was this was unexpected, so we should bail everybody out. I mean, that's not capitalism. That's a variety of socialism. Capitalism is about bearing the risks wherever the risks come from. On the government side, 
it helps for the government to be somewhat conscious of having a budget constraint because then you make choices. Do I spend here or do I spend there? There is some very needed spending to boost the capabilities of people, especially in the lower middle class, the working class, who, for example, their access to broadband, their access to various forms of education, that is very necessary to reduce the inequality in our society. I would put those kinds of spending as upfront to build back in a different way. The easy spending, which was sending checks to everybody, we did upfront. And that could probably have been much better targeted, but there was no intent or incentive to target upfront. And so we've spent a lot of money. Some of it was necessary, but a lot of it perhaps could have been better used to build back better. I agree and disagree at the same time. <laughs> so first of all, definitely, you know, smart policy, not stupid policies, and bailing out companies that actually could have looked inside their own corporate governance and then used some of that to get stronger instead of expecting government bailouts, 100% agree. The thing about the budget constraint, absolutely. However, the risk is that what we're going to see now after these trillions have been injected in is, oh God, now we got to tighten our belts again because you know governments have budget constraints, which in theory, yes, they do have it. But as we know, as we've seen, they don't actually. When we go to war, has any country ever said, oh, sorry, we can't go to Afghanistan. We can't go to Iraq. We can't go to Iran. We can't fight World War II because there's no money. Money is created. The problem is we always create it just in emergencies, in wartime, and in crises like this one, when it's too late, we've actually underfinanced with public money, our health system and different types of welfare services, including government capacity itself, which means that any crisis when it comes along, is much worse than it has to be. So the biggest mistake that we could do now is to say, okay, we put in all this money, but now we're going to have to cut back and implement what sometimes is called austerity. But actually what it means is very specific, right? You know, after the financial crisis in the UK, what we did in terms of austerity, fell on very specific areas, cuts to mental health programs, cuts to public education, cuts to after-school clubs. We actually ended up punishing people instead of many different types of private organizations, including the financial sector, which actually in some ways caused the crisis in the first place. So this idea that government has a budget constraint sometimes leads to other types of stupid policies. You know, it's not just the bailouts that aren't good. It's also just making cuts in the wrong places. So I think of course, we can create money. We do it in wartime, but we need to ask ourselves what that actually means. What are we creating? And then backtracking and saying, well, what kind of finance is actually required for that versus what usually happens, which is here's a bit of money for social services, a bit of money for public education and see what you can do with it. I would just like you agree and disagree. Yeah. I agree on the need for important investments, and I think we haven't made them. We need to think about how to make them in the best way possible. But I also think that we do have budget constraints. The question is, when do we recognize them? In a sense, uh, going forward, the belief that this is the last crisis we have to deal with and that from now on, things are going to be easy is wrong. We do have to keep some spending capacity also for the next crisis. One of the things I want to ask both of you, because you're both famous economists who have either worked in government or are actively advising governments, formally or informally, and I want to ask you, what are you telling leaders who call you for advice? You know, the next six to 10 months are critical in terms of 
how to use stimulus money that's been issued. As both of you have said, it's key to use that money in a smart way. But it's also important to bear in mind that there will be other crises down the line. Raghu, what in general has been the one or two things you have to keep telling elected leaders? Well, I, it's not that they call me regularly and ask me <laughs> for my opinion. Uh, what, I what, wish they did. What academics do is write pieces which they hope somebody will read and then form uh, somebody who can do something about it. So that, That's basically all foreign policy evidence. Yes. So we're in the same boat. I think because of the differential response, the problems are quite different across the world. I think in industrial countries, as Mariana said, we are in a position now to reform, to build back better in a way that economic activity is more egalitarian across the economy. We think carefully about what we've learned from the pandemic, including the ability to work at a distance. So that's one example where ensuring that everybody has digital access. And that would enhance economic activity across the board. And that's actually politically feasible as well. That happens to be one of the few bits of the US infrastructure plan that everyone agrees Exactly. On. And this is where we need to do it sooner rather than later. We've been talking about broadband access for everybody for a long time. So that's one example of, of something that can be done. In poorer countries, I think another area where, which Mariana referred to is education. Education has always been a way out for people. What this pandemic has done is set back education unequally. For the poorer kids in a crowded room without access, some of them uh, struggling with a cell phone, trying to see what the lessons are with a cell phone. They've been set back a couple of years. Put them in the same class with the rich kids and expect them to get back on track? Impossible. The educational divide will just get exacerbated. We need to think a little differently when we come back and we need to spend on this to make the recovery more effective. Yeah. Mariana, what about you? I read in the Times, of course, that everyone from the Pope to AOC in New York turns to you for advice. What have you been saying when people ask you how leaders can respond to this crisis? The three kind of big headline points that I try to make are one, capacity. We just haven't actually invested within our public administrations. And it's just so clear what the implications of that are when then you have a crisis that can be a health crisis, a climate crisis, and so on. Second is conditionalities that we've already talked about, putting stakeholder value and purpose at the center of how public and private actually relate one to another, precisely to avoid the problems that Raghu was talking about in terms of just kind of bailouts, handouts. So what does it mean even with the vaccine, for example? It's not enough to have a vaccine if the public-private relationship is problematic, right? So $12 billion have been put into these different six vaccines. That's very normal in health spending. The U.S. government puts $40 billion a year in health innovation, and then we get the patents wrong. But that's a failure of actually governing a public-private relationship because a patent is basically a 20-year monopoly profit given by the state to the private sector. You need to govern that actually to get a good deal from the public side. And third, this idea of missions, for me, that's about outcomes orientation. So if you are going to have an infrastructure spend investment, what does it mean to turn it into kind of a green infrastructure? But that just means a very different view of what policy is for. It's about shaping, creating markets, again, solving problems, crowding in private sector investment, as opposed to just who needs money. So invest in capacity create conditionality so stakeholder value and purpose is at the center of public-private, 
and outcomes-oriented, mission-oriented policies that are focused on problems and crowd in as many different sectors to be part of the solutions. I love it when economists provide solutions because that's exactly what we need. But Raghu, is there a sense that there might be larger systemic problems that are not fixable purely by policy advice? So are there broader problems within capitalism, within democracy, within urbanization and globalization that mean that necessarily many of our responses are piecemeal and not enough? Well, the pandemic has come on the back of enormous technological change, right? And often what disrupts our society's technological change. As automation spreads through the American economy, experts say its impacts will be uneven. We've seen it, for example, in the nature of jobs in industrial countries. The middle is getting hollowed out. There are fewer adults living in middle-class households across the country than there were in 2000. It is something that is causing significant political angst and inhibiting our ability to arrive at consensus solutions. There is also, in this environment, sometimes a search for the magic bullet. What is the big thing that is going to solve everything? And it may be that there are no magic bullets. I mean, certainly I agree entirely with Mariana's uh, concern about the lack of capacity in government, and we have to build up government capacity much more locally, because often what's true locally can be different from what seems obvious nationally. We need to make the economy work in a much better way so that a lot more decisions can be decentralized and people can have ownership of those decisions, that will also give them a sense of participation. Can I just add to that? I, again, agree and disagree, but actually mainly agree. So the reason I personally focus so much on design challenges between public and private is precisely so we don't just build a bigger kind of state and expect the state to do everything, but actually using words like conditionality or you know, purpose at the center of the ecosystem, not just corporate governance, that means that the the nature of the relationship itself really matters. But the other thing that you mentioned, I would argue that a key thing is the word you use, which is participation, which doesn't necessarily have to happen through, through decentralization. It can also happen through social innovations like citizen assemblies. When we think about things like sustainability or the Green Deal, if it's just the usual suspects, you know, some academics and business leaders some policy leaders without any sort of voice from other types of communities, that's a problem. It's clear from this discussion that we might be entering a new economic era. At the very least, the world has been through so much change in the last year, year and a half, that the moment that is upon us is defining in some senses of the era. Think of the time uh, right after the Great Depression or even right after the global financial crisis I remember the term, the new normal, for example, or say Chimerica to think of the symbiosis between China and America. And Raghu, I'll start with you on this. If you had to come up with a phrase or a term to define the economy in 2021, what would that be? Let me go beyond 2021. What would I like to see? What would I like to uh, describe the next 10 years as? And and I would say it's building back broader. That is, we have a chance, not just to rebuild within countries, which obviously we should, but can rebuild the world better. And this seems hopelessly naive, but I think there is a way we can do it. Where 
both the big powers, the US and China, recognize that they have to have a more equal world if they are to prosper and that they see the great power conflict in its traditional form as the wrong way to proceed. That in fact, we think about the global institutions that need desperate change in a way that allows us to fix some of the biggest problems that face us, climate change, inequality, etc. Hopefully, the pandemic is a wake-up call that we need to do it to deal with these big problems. I'll take that. So build back broader. Yes. Mariana, what about you? Well, I mean, I think we need to again build forward radically better, and that can only happen if we start to really admit that it requires an investment pathway. It requires a lens, a very different lens, also on the narrative. All the narrative about the state is not only that it's there just to fix market failures, but also that you're leveling the playing field. A change of the storytelling, the discourse, the narrative is just as important. The words that we use to describe policy are so boring. Admitting that it requires experimentation, risk-taking, portfolio thinking, tilting the playing field, that is just a very different perspective of what policy is for. And I think we won't build back better unless we undergo that mind shift. So that's build back radically better? Is Was that the phrase? Build forward radically better. <laughs> I'll take that. That's a better podcast name than Global Reboot. Mariana, Raghu, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. So are you going to rename the podcast? <laughs> so it might be a bit late to rename the podcast, but there you go. Um, what I was trying to do there was to ask our two guests to come up with a name to define this new, strange, crazy economic era we're in. And that also happens to be the premise for FP's summer print issue. We have a dozen of the world's top economists weighing in. I know the winning submission already, but I'm not going to reveal it just yet. It'll be up on foreignpolicy.com all in good time. Let's say July. Stay tuned. My thanks to Mariana Matsukato and Raghuram Rajan. Mariana is a professor and author of Mission Economy, a moonshot guide to changing capitalism. Raghu is a professor and former chief economist of the IMF, as well as the former governor of the Reserve Bank of India. Thanks for listening to Global Reboot. I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. Our podcast is a partnership between Foreign Policy and the Doha Forum. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, Dan Efron, Darcy Polder, and Zimone Perez. Next time on the podcast, I'm joined by the former Prime Minister of Australia, Kevin Rudd, to discuss the U.S.-China relationship. China is the central agenda question for our decade ahead, what I call the decade of living dangerously. That's next week on Global Reboot.